My name is Cease, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm very grateful to be here. If you had Tony meeting you at an airplane, you'd be grateful to be here, too. <laughs> if you had him driving to, you th- to this picnic, you'd be really grateful to have him here. But I'm, I'm really grateful to Tony because I saw all of Columbus <laughs> this morning <laughs> on the way to this picnic. Uh, <laughs> he's been a good host. I don't know what it means here. It says to talk slow for, from this podium. And I'm a motivational speaker, and I have a difficult time talking slow. But it reminds me of a story of a church that was trying to make some money. And they decided to sell Bibles. One guy went out and he sold half a dozen Bibles. Another lady went out and sold ten, somebody else twelve. The guy came in and he'd sold 143 Bibles. Man, the old preacher grabbed all of his congregation, he brought them in, and he says to the guy, tell us how you sold 143 Bibles. And he said, well, it was like this. I would walk up to the door, and I would ring the doorbell. When they came to the door, I would say, I am selling Bibles. Would you like to buy one, or would you sooner that I read it to you? (laughs) It's really great to be here, I'll tell you. I've been in Ohio before. Lots of places in Ohio, but I've, I've never been to Columbus before, and I'm, I'm really glad. And, and I, I want to congratulate you people for, for a deal like this, you know. This, this is what AA is all about. Gotta have a fun picnic, you know, and get together and just uh, the fellowship. Because so many people forget that it's a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope. I want to thank my fellow Canadian, Rick, for giving us such a fine Alan talk today. I hear a lot of speakers, a lot of Al-Anon speakers, but Rick, by golly, you are, you, you're just great because you told about, talked about feelings, and you talked about things that every one of us have, especially anger, and uh, I just really, really want to thank you. I'm not going to tell you a whole lot about my drinking tonight, I'm just going to tell you that I did drink. <laughs> I'm not here by mistake. I started early, when I was 16 years of age, I started drink. But I found out why I started to drink when I read the book Alcoholics Anonymous. In the doctor's opinion, it says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive that after a while, they admit it is injurious. They cannot, after a time, differentiate the truth from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. And then it says they are restless, irritable, and discontented. When I was 16 years of age, I wanted to be an athlete, and I was a good athlete. I'd never had a drink, but I became restless, irritable, and discontented. I didn't like the dis of my school. I didn't like the dis of my church. I didn't like the dis of my home. And so I ran away from discipline. And to show you how swift I was, I ran into the army to get away from discipline. <laughs> and that wasn't one of my smarter moves, I'll tell you. And I got along really well in the, in the Army. I'd just come out of high school, and I, I was pretty swift yet. And, and uh, I became an instructor. But I got kicked out when I was 17. Because the first night I was in the Army, I went downtown with the rest of the men, and I went into the beer parlor. And I had the first glass of beer to my, that I know of, can remember, that I ever had. And great things happened to me. My God, the great feeling, it just... You know, I became a conversationalist. I Somebody said something bad to me, and all of a sudden I had muscles, you know. Then we went dancing, and oh, my God, you should have seen me. Canada's own Fred Astaire, you know. For the benefit of the young people, he was a great dancer. And did I say that too fast? <laughs> so uh, so uh, then I took a gal home, and my God, you should have seen me. I was... The great lovers of those days was Clark Gable and Charles Boyer, and I was both of them combined. <laughs> but the next morning, I was that scared little boy that had come in to join the army the day before. But every night, I would go downtown with the rest of the men, so I thought, 
and I could be what I wanted to be. After I got kicked out of the Army, I went back home and I worked in a aircraft factory and I made far too much money. I got a lot of responsibility and all of a sudden I became restless, irritable and discontented because of the responsibility. And I ran once again. And I ran back into the Army. I told them I'd never been in, be in before and this time I was a genius. I got recommended for my commission. I'd love to stand here and tell you that I was an officer in the Canadian Army. But I got kicked out when I was 18. And uh, went back home and worked in a newspaper selling advertising. Once again, I got a lot of responsibility and I didn't like it and I became restless, irritable, and discontented. And I ran once again. And I ran into the Navy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just, I mean, you can tell my life was unmanageable and I had no trouble with the second step when I came to it. I'll tell you about the insanity part. But in the Navy, I told them I'd never been in before and they sent me away for officer's training. And I'd love to stand here and tell you that I uh, was an officer in the Canadian Navy. But I got kicked out of officer's training. It seems that an officer didn't appreciate me to tell him how, what he could do with his ship. <laughs> and as I've been to the East Coast and West Coast, I've seen some of those ships go by. It's really a physical impossibility to do with that ship what I told him to do with it. But, <laughs> but I, I, I didn't get kicked out of the Navy. I just got kicked out of officer's training. And I became a gunner on a merchant ship. And I sailed all over the world, drank all over the world during the war. And it was just great. I got married when I was 19 years old. I'm still married to the same lady. I know that's not popular these days, but I am. <laughs> I, I call her Mrs. I Want Money. And uh, <laughs> she's, she's a great gal. And uh, when I came back from the Navy, I, you know, I had never been, I'd never lived a married life because I got married and went away. And uh, we had a little daughter. And uh, I just didn't know how to be a father or how to be a husband. I just thought that I had to go down to the bar every night the same way as I did in the Navy. And I did that. And I started getting jobs and I started losing jobs. And uh, I was still in my early 20s. When I was 25 years old, I, I went into business. And uh, one morning I did something the night before my wife didn't appreciate. But we'd been in a small town and... And she said she was taking the two little girls and moving back to Prince Albert where we lived. And, and I went down and told my partner what had happened. And he kicked me out of the business. That wasn't one of my better days, I'll tell you. And I went back to Prince Albert. I got a ride back to Prince Albert with some guy that I knew. And, and I got throwing out, thrown out of a beer parlor. <laughs> and uh, for swearing too much. And, uh, you know, I, I just was walking down the street and I said, these people, you know, they just don't understand me. My wife left me, took the two kids, my partner threw me out, and now I got thrown out of a beer pot. And, uh, you know, that's, it's tough to get thrown out of a beer pot. I mean, it's not easy. But the last two years of my drinking, I went to an AA meeting when I was 25 years old. I just, I knew where the AA meeting was and I went there. And they were talking about things that I just didn't understand. They were talking about jails, and they were talking about mental hospitals, and they were talking about no soles in their shoes, and the rear end out of their pants, and stuff like that. And and, and I just just didn't identify with them. It wasn't their fault. It, it was that's what they used to do way back then. Is just talk how much they drank because they didn't know much about the program. And so I, I went to, that night. I left that that meeting. I'm probably the loneliest man in the whole wide world. Because I said, my God, I don't even belong in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I didn't think much of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I thought maybe if I went there, I, w I could get myself straightened around because I knew by what happened to me that, that day, uh, just wasn't right to happen that, that to happen in a person one day. I knew there was something wrong and maybe it was wrong with me. And for the next two years I drank. I became a fighter. I had 17 fights and 17 knockouts and I lost them all. <laughs> I wasn't fighting in any ring I was fighting in bars <laughs> and I'd learned to gamble when I was in the service and I tell that story because I continued to gamble when I got out of the service and I learned how to cheat gamble 
in cards. And uh, that's how I got into Alcoholics Anonymous. I was at a stag for a hockey club where we raised money for a hockey club this night. And, and I was drinking. And I got into the poker game. And I got caught cheating. I guess it's okay to cheat, but don't get caught. <laughs> Especially by the guy that caught me. He weighed about 275 pounds. He was the next commando in the Canadian Army. And he and I had a fight. <clears throat> or I should say, he had a fight. <laughs> he hit me and I hit the cement floor. And I got up and he hit me and I hit the cement floor. And we did a whole bunch of times. And finally I stayed down because I couldn't get up. I like to keep things simple. <laughs> and they took me off to the hospital. And I was in hospital for five days. And nobody, but nobody, none of my family came to see me. But my little doctor, whose partner was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'd been in the service with him. And at the end of the five days when I was going to get out of hospital, <clears throat> he said, Cease, I've done everything I can do for you. He said, the rest's up to you. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well... You should have had your commission in the army, but you drank too much and you didn't get it. Things haven't improved since you got back home. And he said, I think you're alcoholic. And I said, well, what will I do? And he said, well, I, should, I think you should join Alcoholics Anonymous. And with that, he left me. And uh, I was in the morning. He left me there all day long and didn't have any visitors. But that night, a couple of guys came from Alcoholics Anonymous. He sent them. Uninvited. I didn't invite them. They just came. And you know, that's what I've, some people say when they get a 12-step call from someone, a wife phones or something, and they say, well, are they, did they ask for help? I didn't ask for help. A doctor told me I should have help, and he sent some people to help me. And so these two guys came in to see me. And I'll never forget it, because there were two guys that I knew, and there were two guys that looked good. Believe me, they looked good. They were dressed up, and they were clean, and their eyes were shiny. And I think it's so important when we go on a 12-step call to be that way. And these guys were that way. And they told me not about me, they told me about them. And they told me about what happened to them and how they got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And believe me, it was a, it was a great, great deal, because I liked what they said. Now, I know why I became an alcoholic. <clears throat> I became an alcoholic... Because I'm a Protestant. <laughs> Don't laugh, you Catholics. <clears throat> I grew up in a Catholic community. I grew up hating Catholics. They used to do bad things to me. They used to call the bingos in Latin so that I couldn't understand it. And they did a bunch of bad things to me. And here I am in a Catholic hospital with a bad check for a private room. This was before Medicare in Canada. And that little nun, because I was a Protestant, she wouldn't let me out until I paid for that check. And the next morning I phoned the only person in the world that my credit was any good for, and that was my bootlegger. And he came and got me out and paid for my check. Probably had he known what I was going to do, he'd left me in there. Because I haven't had to... Where's everybody going? Just some... <laughs> I'm going to tell a story, they run out. <laughs> Come 6,000 miles to speak and they won't sit down. <laughs> Has everybody had their coffee now? We'll continue. <laughs> Jesus, 46 years of sober sobriety and they haven't even got enough, you know, decency to listen to me. Anyway, I, I, uh, I didn't want to come to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was something like uh, the three alcoholic rabbits. I don't know whether you have alcoholic rabbits down here. We got them back in Canada. They sit out by the fence and their ears drooping down, you know. And there were three of them. And they were called Foot and Foot, Foot and Foot, Foot, Foot. And foot, Foot used to phone them Foot, Foot, Foot. And he'd say, like, pick, well, Foot will go down to the bar. And so Foot, Foot, Foot and Foot, Foot, they'd pick a bowl of Foot and then we'd go down to the bar. One night, Foot Foot was sitting talking to Foot Foot Foot, and Foot Foot said, said to Foot Foot, he said, where's Foot? And Foot Foot said to Foot Foot Foot, he said, you're just a minute ago, but he went outside. So Foot 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 and Foot Foot, they went outside and they found Foot. And Foot was dead. 
Foot, foot said to foot, foot, foot. He said, what do you think we should do with foot? And foot, foot, foot said to foot, foot. He said, we think we should take him to the funeral home. After the funeral, foot, foot said to foot, foot, foot. We said, what do you think old foot died from? And foot, foot, foot said to foot, foot. He said, I think he was alcoholic. And foot, foot said to foot, foot, foot. He said, you think we're alcoholic? And foot, foot, foot said to foot, foot. He said, well, we're drinking quite a bit. Foot, foot said to foot, foot, foot. He said, you think we should join Alcoholics Anonymous? And foot, foot, foot said to foot, foot. Might as well. He said, we got one foot in a grave anyway. <laughs> Uh, see, had you gone for coffee, you'd have missed that. <laughs> and that's what I thought you had to have to join Alcoholics Anonymous. Next morning I met the guys, they had an emergency meeting. Back in those days, if you got a live one, they all came. And they all came to the emergency meeting. They had it in a restaurant. They told me that I had to be there at 10 o'clock. I had the taxi driver driving there at 10 o'clock, and I went in. Fifteen guys, the entire group, everybody that belonged to Alcoholics Anonymous in our city, came. And uh, we sat there, and they talked to me. And I liked, I liked them. I liked what they said. And so I decided I'd join Alcoholics Anonymous, go to my first meeting that night. Then they said uh, they would take me home. And I said, no, 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 I don't want to take me home because that little, I want money there. She, she was a little narrow about me being away. I'd been away a few times before. And if I took somebody home with me, she'd run them off. And so I didn't want her to do that to these newfound friends. So, but fortunately for me, the ladies from some of the husbands had been up to see her. There were no ladies in our group at that time, but they'd been up to see her and told her what I was trying to do. I went in and when I went in, uh, she kissed me, and she said, I think everything is going to be okay, hon. And believe me, if nothing else, that kept me in AA for that day, because she had changed already. You know, a great deal. <laughs> I was really happy. <laughs> so so uh, that night we went to an AA deal, a Saturday night just like this. And I walked in there, and my God, then I looked around at these guys. Old men, some of them are 40, 45 years old. And I'm 27, you know, and I think, my God, what am I getting in here? And they had a social, and they played games. And they, they, I mean, I remember they played pin the tail on the donkey. Now, that wasn't my idea of a Saturday night, I'll tell you. But then I looked, and everybody was enjoying themselves, even my wife. And so then they had a meeting, and uh, one guy stood up, he said he'd been sober a year, and I thought I sat in the back, and I thought, liar. I, I knew this guy, and I knew he was a traveling man. He probably went out and drank in and drank out during the week and told these donkeys he was sober. I had them all figured out. But then they told me, it, a couple of the old-timers that were sober, about 18 months, they took me in the other room, and... And they said, you know, you heard people say tonight that there's no must in AA. They used to say it back in those days. But they said, tomorrow morning, there's a meeting here and you must be there. And I have never stopped going. I have never stopped going from that day. That was January the 16th, 1952. Because you people, because of the grace of God and the program called Alcoholics Anonymous, I've been able to stay sober by going to those meetings. And believe me, I'll be ever grateful for it. Because I found in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, I found friends, and I found a freedom that I didn't think was possible. And I stayed sober just by pats on the back. People used to say, you're doing a fine job, kid. No, God, that's what I always wanted. People pat me on the back. And then a terrible thing happened, a real bad thing in our group. Some younger members came in, <laughs> and they walked right by me and talked to the older members, and the older members walked right by me and talked to the younger members. And all of a sudden, I became a middle member. And I don't care whether you belong to Al-Anon, Alateen, Alatod, Alcoholics Anonymous. One day, you're going to be a middle member. And it's a bad thing. It's just like a hole in a donut. You're nothing. You know, people, people just walk right by you. And, and they told me that I had to be honest. And uh, I thought, well... I'm pretty honest. I thought they were talking about cash register honesty. No. But they said you have to be honest with yourself. And I didn't even know what they meant by being honest with yourself. And you know, most of us are honest. But sometimes we, uh, you know, we just do a little something that's a little bit dishonest. It, it's pretty easy. Whether you're an Al-Anon or AA, it doesn't matter. Sometimes we do dishonest things. I heard a story about a 
fellow that had a very successful business. And uh, he had a bookkeeper that was mute. And the bookkeeper was a great bookkeeper and the business flourished and everything. But you know what most bosses are like when they start making a lot of money? They get thinking, well, maybe somebody's stealing money. And he used to go back every night for about three months and check the books. And he checked them and rechecked them and rechecked them and found out that he was $50,000 short. So he thought, well, how am I going to talk to the guy? The guy's mute. But he knew a fellow that had, that could do sign language. So he asked his fellow to come over and he called the three, got the three of them in a room and he said, ask my bookkeeper where my $50,000 is. And the guy said, he wants to know where your $50,000 is. I hope I'm not swearing. But the guy, the guy said, I don't know. He said, what do you say? He said, he doesn't know. Ask him again, he said. He said, he wants to know where your $50,000 is. And he said, don't know, he said. So, guys, what did he say? He said, he doesn't know. The guy took a gun out and put it on the, on the table, and he said, tell him I'm going to shoot him if he doesn't tell me. He said, he says he's going to shoot you if you don't get, tell him where the $50,000 is. And the guy says, don't know. So, he said, what does he say? He says, he doesn't know. The guy took the gun and he put it right up to the, on the guy's temple and he said, you tell him in 30 seconds he's going to be history if he doesn't tell him where this $50,000 is. The guy said, if you don't tell him in 30 seconds where the $50,000 is, he's going to shoot you. Because 30 seconds, that's all you got. The guy said, it's in an old tin can underneath that old old tree in the back of my yard. And the guy said, what do you say? And he said, he doesn't know. <laughs> So you see, we can be just a little bit if it, if it means a little few dollars to us, we can be dishonest. <laughs> but I was, uh, I was doing really well in AA. I just loved it. We'd go to deals like this and not, you know, small deals all over the country and I really enjoyed it. And when this deal happened where I became a middle member, I thought, well, maybe if I went out and practiced a bit and come back in, I'd get the same treatment. Thank God I didn't have to do that. We had a guy by the name of Ernie Seeger, and we asked Ernie if he would chair our meetings for three months. Now, we have discussion meetings where I come from. There aren't any speaker meetings. And uh, he said he would do one thing. He would chair it if we did something he wanted to do. And we said, what's that? And he said, well, I want us as a group to do the steps, not study them, but to do them, and to do them in sequence. And we thought we'd, you know, humor old Ernie along, so we said, okay, we'd do that. And that's the experience that I want to share with you, the experience I've had since coming to Alcoholics Anonymous. Ernie told us that they went to the first meeting. Ernie told us, give us, told us to bring our books, told us to go home and read the first 164 pages. Now, that's not very difficult to read 164 pages, but it's difficult if you think you're going to have an exam or something on it. I'd phone, phone my sponsor, and incidentally, I have the same sponsor today as I had the first day I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Elmer is sober ten days longer than me. He was an old-timer when I came. <laughs> and he's still my sponsor. And nobody else in Alcoholics Anonymous has had the same sponsor as long as me. I've said this at international conventions. I don't think I'll get in the book of Guinness or Ripley knows better or whatever it is. But I mean... <laughs> Believe it or not. But I just like to throw that in once in a while. <laughs> and, and anyway, I'd phone Elmer and I'd say, what do you think Ernie will ask us? And he says, God, I don't know. And we'd start figuring it out. You know, maybe Ernie would ask us this and ask us that. We went back next week and Ernie didn't ask us anything. Just asked us, had we read the first 164 pages? We all put up our hands. We'd all done it. Okay, tonight he says we're going to do step one. Where we admitted we're powerless over alcohol and our lives had become unmanageable. And he got a commitment from us that we were powerless over alcohol. He got a commitment from us that we had an unmanageable life. I didn't even know there was a second part to that step until Ernie brought it to my, my mind that day. So I had an unmanageable life as far as money is concerned. Now, I know none of you will even identify with that, but I came to Alcoholics Anonymous owing $6,200. Not a lot of money, I know, in Ohio. 
but it's a lot of money back in Saskatchewan in 1952. If you put it into inflationary terms, it's probably about $40,000 anyway. And I didn't owe it for anything. I just owed it. I came here by way of a poker game, remember? And I owed some of it to bad people. And I had a, I got a real good job. I had a real good job. I was manager of a fur department in, in the ladies, the largest ladies wear store in Saskatchewan. I was making good money. But I owed the $6,200. And my boss got upset by getting so many phone calls and me getting so many phone calls. He took me to the bank and made my wife and I sign a note that we would never charge anything again. And he endorsed my note for $6,200. And I don't know why they did it this way, but I gave them the list, and they made out the checks, and they had me sign the checks, and they, he and the bank manager sent the checks away. I don't know why they did it that way. But, but I had an unmanageable life as far as money is concerned. Now, I share this with you, and I know you won't even know what I'm talking about. But I found that financial problems had nothing to do with money. Had a lot to do with big shot-ism. Had a lot to do with ego had a lot to do with pride. He bailed me out several years later for $7,500 because I have suffered from big shot-ism. And to show you that I've changed a little bit, up until a couple of years ago, I was in the fur business. And I owed a manufacturer $10,000. Not a lot of money in the fur business. But it's a lot of money in the middle of July when we're about 96 above. And he was phoning me and giving me a bad time, and I wrote him a letter. The letter went something like this. Dear Mr. Amsel, I love your merchandise. I've sold some of it on small deposits. I'd love to have it, have fall dating on it. And then I threw a little philosophy at him. I said if I had five, ten miles to walk down a railroad track, it would seem like a long ways. But if I took it a telephone pole at a time, it would even seem further, but I'd finally get there. And I signed it, yours truly, Cecil E. Corgill, manager of Cecil Corgill Furs and Fashions, P.S. I'm enclosing a certified check for $100. About four days later, I got a letter back. He congratulated me on my letter writing ability. He suggested I get out of the fur business and go writing letters for somebody. Signed it yours truly, Mo Amsel, from Amsel and Amsel, and signed it. And then he said, P.S., would you mind sending me another telephone pole? <laughs> And I've sent him, I don't owe him any telephone poles anymore, they're not even business, but I mean, I, I start paying my debts that way by telephone poles. And I got out of debt. And I, today, certainly I owe some money. Who doesn't owe some money? You got a mortgage maybe, or you got something, but I'm telling you, I haven't got any of that foolish money that I owe. And I learned that, and I learned I had other, I had other deals. In my unmanageability of my life, but that was the biggest deal I had. And if you ever meet somebody that has financial problems, tell them to try to get a program that'll help them get out of it. Because I'll tell you what happened to me after I was sober. Well, it was long enough to become an eye specialist. By that I mean, I can do this, I can do that, I know this, I, 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 I. And I went home and my wife was sitting there for lunch and my wife was sitting there with our two little girls and she said, I thought you said you paid so-and-so. <laughs> and the great one here said, if I said I paid him, I paid him. <laughs> and she said, well, why would they phone me this morning and say you didn't pay them? And you know, the Al-Nan speaker was talking about rage, <laughs> anger. I grabbed my food, I heaved it over Mrs. Iwan Money's head <laughs> into the sink. I got up and took the phone off the wall, and I said, they'll not be phoning you anymore. <laughs> you know. And this, like a lot of people think unmanageability of your life is when you're drunk. You give any dear Presbyterian old lady, or even a Catholic lady, any of that stuff that I drank, and they'll have an unmanageable life, I guarantee it. But this is sober that I had the unmanageable life. Well, drinking too, but sober I had it. And so this first step, when Ernie took it that week, he asked us to go home, think about it, and really convince ourselves that we had an unmanageable life and that we were powerless over alcohol. Next week we went there and Ernie said, okay, this week we're going to do step two. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to study it. We're going to do it. We're going to put it into our lives where we admitted we're powerless over alcohol and our lives have become unmanageable. 
And I, I, I got thinking, I thought, Michael, I had an unmanageable life, maybe I could find a manager. And, uh, you know, where it says, can to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity? And I said, well, to Ernie, I, I haven't been to a mental hospital. How can I come back from somewhere I haven't been? <laughs> and Ernie said, it's not that, Cease. He said, you have a problem with negative thinking. And uh, I know down here you probably don't even know this, but back home we have people that sit around trying to help somebody that's not there. You know, have you ever seen that? They sit around and they say, have you heard? <laughs> Did you know? <laughs> Isn't it awful? Don't tell them anybody I told you. And they do this, you know, all the time, trying to help somebody that's not there. And I was that kind of a guy. I was just a negative thinker. I was something like the negative barber. A guy slid into a barber chair and he said, I'd like a haircut last for three weeks. The barber said, why three weeks? He said, I'm going on vacation. The barber said, where are you going? He said, first of all, I'm going to London, England. The barber said, you're not going to London, England. He said, I am. He said, you're not. He said, I am. He said, I wouldn't go there if I were you. He said, too many cars, too many people. The guy said, look, I don't care if I don't like it there. I'm going to Paris. The barber says, you're not going to Paris. He said, I am. He said, you're not. He said, I am. He said, I wouldn't go there if I were you. He said, no, I've never been there, but I heard they really fleece the tourists there. And the guy said, look, I don't care. Just cut my hair. If I don't like it there, I'm going to Rome. The barber says, you're not going to Rome. He said, I am. He said, you're not. He said, I am. He said, I wouldn't go there if I were you. He said, they, I understand a lot of Catholics there. I said, I don't care. He said, I'm a Catholic. Yeah, but the barber said, I heard different kind of a Catholic over there. Three weeks later, the guy come in, slid into the barber's chair. The barber said, how was your trip? He said, it was good. He said, it wasn't. He said, it was. He said, you didn't go to London. He said, I did. He said, you didn't. He said, I did. Love to stay there longer to want to get on to Paris. He says, you didn't go to Paris. He said, I did. He says, you didn't. He said, I did. Love to stay there longer but want to get on to Rome. He says, you didn't go to Rome. He says, I did. He says, you did. He said, I did. He says, you'll never believe what happened. He says, I got an audience with the Pope. And he says, you didn't. He said, I did. He says, you didn't. He says, you'll never believe what happened. I knelt down to kiss the Pope's ring and you'll never believe what the Pope said and the barber says what and he says where the hell did you get that lousy haircut <laughs> so I was something like the, the negative barber I didn't know but I'd heard and so I took it that simple I just took it that you know I had an unmanageable life here was a manager and I I didn't care. I didn't I had sort of lost faith in the manager, but I didn't argue anything about it. I just accepted the fact that a power greater than myself could help me. Next week we came and the barber said or the <laughs> Ernie. I mean that barber deal. Ernie said, uh, this week we're gonna take step three. We have to make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. And Ernie said, All we're gonna do is make the decision. We don't have to find God. God is not lost, he said. We don't have to go looking for him. He said, we just have to make a decision. I heard a story the other day about two little Italian boys, real bad boys, 10 and 12 years old. And they were in trouble all of the time, and they were up in front of the judge, and oh my God, they were really bad kids. And, and finally one day the judge got sick and tired of it, and he, he, he took them one at a time, and he took them into another room, and he sat there, just he and the policeman and the kid, and he said to the kid, Where's God? The kid said, I don't know. And he said, I'm going to ask you again, where is God? He said, I don't know. And he shook him a little bit. And he said, where's God? And he said, don't know. And he said, get him out of here. Bring his brother in. So the policeman took him out. And they let, the brothers met as they were coming out of the cell. One was going in, one was coming out. And the kid said, boy, we're really in trouble. They've lost God and they think we have him. <laughs> <laughs> so in step three it said made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him Ernie said that's all you have to do is make the decision and he said read step three in, in, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and you'll find out that maybe you don't want to be that way just make the decision and I know it's difficult to make decisions everybody has difficult time making decisions I heard a story about, uh, you probably haven't got poachers down here, people that sh shoot out of season, fish out of season, everything. We have them back home. And this old poacher, he used to, they just couldn't catch them. And a new game warden came to town, 
He went down and he made friends with the old poacher, and at two o'clock in the afternoon, the old poacher didn't know he was talking to a game warden. The game warden was dressed up in old clothes and everything. And he said, well, I'm going fishing. And the game warden, who he didn't know was a game warden, said, well, can I go with you? So they get out in the middle of the stream, and the old poacher reached over, opened a tin box, took out two sticks of dynamite, lit them, threw them into the drink, boom, up comes the fish, out comes the net, and he starts throwing them into the boat, out comes the badge. And the old game warden said, I finally got you. And he's given the old poacher a lecture, and the old poacher didn't bat an eye. He reached over, he got two more sticks of dynamite. He lit them, handed them over to the game warden. The game warden's sitting there with two lit sticks of dynamite. And the old poacher says, look at buddy, do you want to talk or do you want to fish? <laughs> he made a decision, I'll tell you. <laughs> and so that's all we had to do. <laughs> that's all we had to do, and the third step is make a decision. Make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. And I had to keep it simple. I went home that night, and by that, at that time, I wasn't getting on my knees in front of my wife. I went into the bathroom, and then I went downstairs. I thought I'd be really okay down there, and I went downstairs. And I said, God, I've made a bad job of managing my life. How about give me a hand? That's as simple as I had to keep it. Because, you see, if I complicate things, I get in trouble. So I keep it simple. I had a friend of mine back home that had a ranch. <clears throat> Another guy said, how'd you get the name of your ranch? He said, well, I wanted to call it the Bar Q. My wife wanted to call it Susie Q. My son wanted to call it the Bar Susie Q. And my daughter wanted to call it Susie Bar Q. So we called it the Bar Q, Susie Q, Susie Bar Q, Bar Susie Q. And the guy said, well, that's a great name. But he said, how's the, where are your cattle? He said, none of them ever survived the branding. <laughs> so so that, that may happen to us, you see, if we... We don't keep it simple. <clears throat> and uh, so I did that. The next week we came and Ernie brought pencils and paper for us. And he uh, and we said, what's this? And he said, well, somebody told me they couldn't find a pencil and a paper to do the fourth step. So here's a pencil and paper. And by God, we sat there and Ernie took this big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, went page 65, showed us the menu right there how to do it. We went home and everybody did their step four. Wrote it out just from that deal there. Now, I know there's lots of other deals that come from treatment centers and stuff, how to do a step four, but Ernie made us do that one because at that time there wasn't any treatment centers. So we did it this way. Next week we went back, all with our step four done, and we wanted I wanted to show it to Ernie, and Ernie said, no, this is personal. He said, you know, you got to take your own inventory. Now, taking inventory should be easy because I used to take everybody's inventory, you know. But here I am, all I have to do is take my own. And I, 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 a lot of people have a difficult time with step four, and I don't know why. Because all we have to do is take our own inventory. And that's what I did. I took my inventory. But you know, it, it's difficult because we have to have a look at ourselves. I heard a story about a dear old lady that went to the doctor. <clears throat> and the doctor says, what's the trouble? Well, she says, uh, really no trouble. She said, I have gas on my stomach, but no trouble. No noise and no odor, she said. So they, the doctor gave her some pills and she went home and, and, he, and she come back the next week and she says, now I really got a problem. Bad, bad odor, she said, but, but still, still no noise. <laughs> he gave her another prescription. He says, now we've done something about your nose. We'll see if we can do something about your ears. You know? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Did I say it too fast? Sorry. <laughs> but sometimes we just go into denial. <laughs> That's a tough thing in Alcoholics Anonymous or Al-Anon, is denial. I imagine that you have moose down here, don't you? No? Well, you heard of them. We have a lot of moose where I come from. North of our place, about 150 miles, and that's really north. Three, three hunters were out there, and they, they got three moose, and they radioed for the plane to come back and pick them up and take them out. The plane got there, and these three big moose, I mean, really big moose were there, and the pilot said, my God, I don't think that we can take off with that heavy load. Oh, the guy said, we did it last year. What do we do is go way down the lake, just rev the heck out of it and get up, and we get right over the trees. So the guy said, okay, we'll try. And he tried. Sure enough, they got right over the trees. About 20 miles out of the city where they were going, the town they were going to, the plane went down. 
And one guy said, the other guy said, by God, this is about the same place we went down last year. <laughs> so, so, you see, we, we keep doing those things. We just keep doing those things and denying them. And that's what I did. And then after step four, we all did did step four, and Ernie told us we did good, but then he said we have to take step five. Now, back home where I come from, I know a lot of people down here tell, tell me they took their step five with their sponsor. I wouldn't take a step five with old Elmer. He's a blabbermouth. He's not that smart. I'm smarter than he is. And not only that, he might get drunk. He's only sober for a little while. And uh, back home, we we uh, go to a member of the cloth, and and we read that in this book. Now, I we bought this book in the United States, incidentally, so don't think it's some propaganda I'm bringing down from the Canada. <laughs> it says, rightly and naturally, we think well before we choose the person who persons with whom to take this intimate and confidential step. Those of us belonging to a religious denomination which requires confession must, and of course, we want to go to the properly appointed authority whose duty it is to receive it. I imagine that's the Catholics. But it says, it's just an observation I made. Though we have no religious connections with the Catholics, think we don't, we, we may still do well to talk with someone ordained by an established religion. We often find such a person quick to see and understand our problem. You know, so this is what it says on page 74 of this big book that I bought in the United States. So don't think that it's... And, and practically every AA I've ever talked to, they said they went to their sponsor to take their... What can your sponsor really do if you have a real problem? They'll say, oh, they'll pat you in the head. I do that too. <laughs> you, know? you know, I mean, old Elmer hasn't got enough sense to take a step five, and I haven't got enough sense. And I've sponsored a lot of people, so we go to the men that we're supposed to go to. The way it tells me in the book, and so we did that. The next, admitted we're powerless over alcohol. Admitted we had an unmanageable life. You know that we admitted we were insane. <laughs> He said we turned our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood him. He said we took an inventory of ourselves. We went and wrapped off to somebody. And he said, and but Ernie made us do the fifth step and admit it to God, to ourselves, and to another human being. He made, it, made us admit to God, and then to ourselves, and then to another human being. And I went into the bathroom, and I got down on my knees, and I admitted it to God. I got up to look in the mirror to admit it to myself, and you know what? I change stories from there to there. I'm possible. I can do that. And I'll bet you can too. Just try it. But a lot of people think it's just admitting to somebody else. It says admit it to God, to ourselves, and to another human being. And that's what I had to do. Thank God I did it. And then Ernie told us we hadn't done anything. He said, now, this is the step that separates the men from the boys. Are we entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character? And in step seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. You know, the trouble with, with this step is I think people are afraid of becoming too good too fast. <laughs> Don't worry about that. <laughs> I do this almost every Saturday night, and I have never met a saint yet. Not even an Al-Anon. I haven't met a saint you know, we just have to be entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character and humbly ask Him to remove our shortcomings. Do you ever see people have a meeting where they sit around talking about the difference between defects of character and shortcomings? Two or three hours later they leave and they don't know what the difference is and they still have them and they don't know how to get rid of them. But it tells you exactly how to get rid of them, to be entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Doesn't mean, Ernie told us, that he's going to remove them, but at least be ready to get well and then to humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. And this is what we had to do. And so we did that. Now, when I say 
we're afraid of becoming too good too fast. I heard a story about little Johnny. His mother caught him playing with himself. Now, that's talked about in every magazine in the country today, so it's nothing bad that you can't stay from a podium. Wouldn't be big sellers if we didn't buy them. And uh, she said to Johnny, Johnny, if you don't stop doing that, you're going to go blind. And Johnny says, well, can I keep it up till I need glasses? <laughs> and I was speaking over in Western Canada one day, and I told that story, and when I was finished, there was a lady right from the back of the room. She headed towards me, and she looked like she was the president of the Temperance League. And I thought, oh, my God, I shouldn't have told that story. And she, she came up to the podium and she said, young man, <laughs> this was quite a few years ago, and uh, she, she said, I really liked the way you took us through the steps. I especially liked the way you told that story about little Johnny. She said, but as I looked around this morning, did you see how many alcoholics were wearing glasses? <laughs> <laughs> and then it says, humbly ask them to remove our shortcomings. You know, humility is something that is really, really just fouled up in Alcoholics Anonymous. You hear people talking about, I humbled myself when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I humiliated myself when I came. <laughs> I didn't want to come with you people. I humiliated myself. But if ever you want to... You know, somebody was reading the Daily Reflections today. And if you look in the back there about humility, there's about probably 30 pages about humility where it tells us what really what humility is. And, and if you ever get in a discussion about humility at a discussion meeting, it is absolutely ridiculous what people talk about about humility. And it's usually about humiliation. So, with me, I heard Arbutus, who is a member of Alnon from Texas, she said to her, humility was the ability to stand and the willingness to kneel. The ability to stand up for what you believe in and the willingness to get down on your knees and thank God. She said it had something to do with gratitude, where we were grateful for what we had and that we weren't envious of what we didn't have. And she taught me a whole lot about humility. And I'm grateful today that, that I can, that I understand humility. I'm not going to tell you that I have humility because I believe when you say you got it, you just lost it. You know? So it's, it's a very funny thing, but it's, it's a good thing to strive for that, that you can be a humble person. And Ernie taught us that. Then we went on to step eight, and Ernie said, we've got to make another list, fellas, of all the people we'd harmed and become willing to make amends to them all. And I said to Ernie, Ernie, I made my list in step four. And he said, Corgill, knowing you, you probably hurt somebody between step four and step eight. Just make the list. And I made the list, and I became willing. And willingness is such a tremendous thing in this program, to be willing to do what they ask you to do. And it's, it's so powerful. And then they, they, they really threw the deal at us then, and they said, in step nine, where we had to be, go out and make direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. And when she read the Twelve Promises, if you look in the big book on page 83 or 84, it says, if we are painstaking about this phase, it comes right after we've taken step nine. For you see, the first nine steps... As far as I'm concerned, we're dealing with the past, and we get rid of that past. And we get that freedom if we go out and we make those amends, if we make those apologies, except when to do so would injure them or others. We have to be hard on ourselves, but easy on other people. And I, I made my amends, and today I'm able to walk down any street in the world, free to walk down that street. And I'm very grateful for that because of Alcoholics Anonymous. Step 10, Ernie said, now, if we take step 10, 11, and 12 on a daily basis, we will never have to go back and do those other nine steps again, because step 10 tells us we're entirely ready 
or that we continue to take personal inventory, and when we're wrong, promptly admit it. So we have to do that each and every day. I want to share something with you. When I was 10 years sober, I forgot who I was and what I was and where I'd come from. I was going to meetings all of the time, but I wasn't doing a step 10 all the time as Ernie has taught us to do. I became... I guess a Mr. Big Shot in Alcoholics Anonymous, if there's such a thing. I'd been a delegate to the General Service Conference. I had a big job. I was managing this big ladies' wear store. I was looking after the first for five stores. And I was driving a big company car, and I had the, the, everything going for me. Doing a deal on television and doing radio shows. and Everything was going right for old C's. Except, all of a sudden... I had that football in my stomach because I wasn't doing a step 10, and I wasn't doing a step 11, and I wasn't doing a step 12, the way it's supposed to be done. And one day my boss called me in to the office, and we had the largest ladies' wear store in the province of Saskatchewan. And it seemed that he felt that the store wasn't quite big enough for the two of us. <laughs> and it seemed that he owned the store. And it seemed that he wasn't about to leave. <laughs> and he fired the great one. And I walked out of the store with an attitude, something like this. They won't last long now. The great one's gone. <laughs> They're still there. They're okay. They're still millionaires. I used to go to a meeting with an attitude, something like this. <laughs> you lucky people, you know, if somebody wants a little counseling, I'll give you a few minutes of my time. I did a program at the penitentiary. Twelve steps. I did it for twelve years in a row and never missed on Tuesday night. But during that period of my time, when I was ten years sober, I would drive up there in my big automobile with an attitude something like this. These guys are really lucky that the great one comes up here every Tuesday night. Isn't that sick? But that's what, that's what happened to me because I wasn't taking an inventory, a daily inventory. And when I was wrong, promptly admitted it. I went into Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is about 600 miles away. But before I went there, I went to visit a little cousin who had come to visit me who was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I stood up in front of her in my brand new threads and I said, Well, kid, how do I look? In my big egotistical way. And she said, You look really good on the outside, Cease, but how are you really on the inside? And I went away to this other conference. And believe me, I started to think about what Furnish said. And I spent a couple of days in a hotel room with my big book and just talking to God. I went back home and I was went in business for myself. That's no deal. I, I had to do something. But before I did that, there was a dear old man by the name of Ross Marr who's now gone up to that great roundup that lived in Winnipeg. And I spent some time with him. And he came down to the train with me before I left to go back home, which is about 600 miles. And I said, Ross, what's wrong with me? And he said, nothing cease. He said, except that you have untreated alcoholism. And I said, you mean that I have to go to a treatment center? And he says, no, you have to start doing what you used to do. That's taking a daily inventory. And you have to do a step 11 like you used to do. And you have to start helping people with the right motive. And I went back home and I started doing what I was supposed to do. Now, I'd never been away from AA, but I went back with the right attitude. And I started doing a daily inventory where I continued, and continued means to continue, 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 to do an inventory and spot check it and find out where you're wrong and promptly admit it. You don't have to walk around with any of that garbage and get that football in the stomach. Step 11 taught me where I had a sought through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. The very fact that there's 17 more words to that step. I think maybe it's 17 more words bigger than other steps. Each and every day, no matter where I am, I take my big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and I read page 86, 87, and 88, which is the 11th step. I read the prayer on page 63, and I do the prayer on page 63, and also the prayer on the seventh step prayer on page 76. I read the last part of 164, which is a vision for you, which it tells me that I, I trudge the road of happy destiny. It doesn't say I trudge 
and get to the road of happy destiny. And it doesn't say I gallop. It says I trudge the road of happy destiny. And I read the promises. And I read acceptance on page 49, 449, right? And I don't only read it on page 449. I read it through to page 52. And it tells me about a relationship. And the reason I do that is that one time I found myself going to work having an argument with a guy that lived in Vancouver, British Columbia, that I was going to meet in Montreal at the fur convention, and I was having an argument with him. And all of a sudden, I got right into the argument, and I started arguing out loud. I come from a town of 35,000 people. I'd get to a stop sign, and there I would be just arguing with this guy. People would look over, you know, wonder what's with old C's today. You know, and I got to my store. I wasn't finished the argument. I drove around the block a couple of times to finish the argument, and got to work a quarter to nine in the morning completely exhausted, arguing with somebody that wasn't even there. And I decided I didn't want to live that way. So I started doing my quiet time in the morning. Each and every morning I'd do that. At night time I thank God in my tenth step for what has happened to me today. I say a little prayer before I go to bed that my grandmother taught me. And that little prayer, I'm going to share it with you. It's, please God, treat me tomorrow as I've treated everybody today. <laughs> Be careful when you say that one. <laughs> <laughs> and the next morning, I do my quiet time. And I do my quiet time because you never know who is out there to get you. Somebody is going to aggravate your disease during the day. Sometimes before I get out of the house, Mrs. I Want Money gets to me. You know. <laughs> I'll be just sneaking out the door, and she'll say she has to have her hair done. <laughs> have I got some money? She's got money, <laughs> but she wants my money. <laughs> and you know what I do? I've done my reading. I've done my prayer and meditation. I kiss her goodbye, tell her I love her, and don't give her any money, and I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't used to be like that. I used to react when she asked me for some money. I gave her a lecture and give myself a lecture. I use bad words. Now I don't have to do that because I do my prayer and meditation in the morning. Because you see, you never know who is out there to get you. I heard a story about another old poacher. And the game warden's name was Ralph. And old Ralph tried for five years to catch this old poacher. Finally, he went down and he bedded down in a, behind a bale of hay beside this old poacher's shack, and he figures, well, when he comes out in the morning, sure as heck he's going to do something. So at four o'clock in the morning, he heard the old door creaking open, he said, I'm going to catch him now. And the old poacher poked his head out the door, and he said, want some breakfast, Ralph? <laughs> Ralph come out of the hay, and he went in, and he's having breakfast, and he said, how did you know I was out there? And the old poacher said, I didn't, but every morning for the past five years, I've opened the door and said, want some breakfast, Ralph? <laughs> you see? I mean, he's ready for it. So that's what I do in Alcoholics Anonymous. I stay ready. And by golly, it works, I'll tell you. And I've had some great experiences with doing it. I've been taught my grandchildren how to do a quiet time. I taught them that little prayer. And they're all grown up except one of them. One is a lawyer, one is a school teacher, and one is a social worker. The 14-year-old, I think he's going to be a gangster, but he knows the prayer anyway. <laughs> For you see, my oldest daughter, we gave her everything that she could possibly want. We gave her love, we gave her an education, everything. And you'll never believe what she did. She married a Catholic. <laughs> An Italian one, they're the worst kind. <laughs> and they have two beautiful little girls. Anna, Louisa, and Cella Maria. <laughs> Where would they find names like that? My other daughter, she was married to a Protestant, and, and she has a son with this Protestant, and his name is Jason, he's a lawyer now. And then she divorced her Protestant husband and got married to a Catholic, another Italian. And they got a little guy, and they call him Giovanni Anthony. How can they possibly pin a na name like that on a kid, you know? And, and he's, he's a great kid. 
he and I chum a lot together. He calls me Cease, and we go a lot of places together, and we, I watch him play hockey, and he says, he doesn't, he's very positive. He doesn't say, are you coming to the hockey game, Cease? He says, see you at the hockey game, Cease. Away he goes, he phones me, I pick him up, and we go eating, and just do a lot of things, just because of Alcoholics Anonymous. He likes Elmer. He likes my, my sponsor. And he, he likes when we meet Elmer in a restaurant, Elmer talks to him and he said, Elmer's funny. You know, and he makes me tell Elmer stories about what Elmer and I did. And he just, just loves Alcoholics Anonymous. All because of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have that association. And then the 12th step, we went on the next week and it said that we, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Spiritual awakening to me is just a personality change. When I got up yesterday morning at 4 o'clock in the morning, you know, I got up, had a drive 100 miles to catch an airplane. If I would have said to myself, holy malarkey, I got to drive 100 miles, I have to fly to Minneapolis, you know, and maybe I saw that the, they were kind of having a slow work deal there or something because of that labor problem. I said, maybe I'm going to have to wait there for a while. I would have been played out before I got out of the bathroom. But I said, by golly, you know, I'm going off to Ohio this week. Haven't been to Columbus before, but I'm going. Been all over Ohio, but never been to Columbus, you know. And I was happy. I got out of that car, drove to Saskatoon. And you should have seen the people in that airport when they canceled that plane. Didn't cancel it. They put, instead of 6.30, they put 7 o'clock. Then they put 8 o'clock. Then they put 9 o'clock. And then they told us, you should have seen those people. And you know what I did? Just sat there. <laughs> because I'd done my reading yesterday morning. I didn't have to get all set, all upset. I knew that my buddy Tony would be there to meet me because we made that deal. I didn't even know Tony's last name, but I knew if I walked there and said, Tony, he'd come running. And <laughs> I'd say, so how are you? You know? Just don't worry about those things, just because I've done my reading. And then it says we tried to carry the message the alcoholic itself suffers. You know, a lot of us are concerned about getting people to Alcoholics Anonymous. Don't be concerned about getting people to Alcoholics Anonymous. Be concerned about keeping the people here that we've got. I'll tell you something, 40% of you people won't be at this deal next year. You'll be replaced by some people. But 40% of you won't be here. Because there's more people leaving Alcoholics Anonymous than there are coming to it today. You know why they're leaving? Because people aren't prepared to give them the program, let them know what, it, what it's all about. We're not prepared to make them feel comfortable when they come into Alcoholics Anonymous. We're not prepared to watch them when they come out of treatment centers and sponsor them. If there's anything weak, it's sponsorship in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not saying you people. I'm talking about a worldwide. And I just hope that you people will be the kind of people that will follow that program. And then it says, practice these principles in all our affairs. When we talk about principles in this little deal here, it says, they're talking about the principle of step one, which is honesty. Step two, hope. Step three, faith. Step four, courage. Step five, integrity. Step six, willingness. Step seven, humility. Step eight, brotherly love. Step nine, justice. Step 10, perseverance. Step 11, spirituality. And step 12, service. And I, uh, most people who've been sober 40 years or more are writing books. And my group said to me, Cease, why don't you write a book? You've had so much experience. And I wrote a book. And it's called The Daily Spiritual Guide. Daily Spiritual Guide. First, first page it says, get up and pray. Next page says, get dressed. Next page says, don't drink and go to meetings. Next step says, do the steps in sequence. Next step says, get a job. <laughs> Next step says, help someone else. And the last step says, pray and go to bed. Now, this hasn't been conference approved yet, but... <laughs> so tonight, when you look around tonight... Have a look, have a look, because there's some people in, in this audience right today who have got a football in their stomach, and they're having a tough time because they aren't practicing the program or no, somebody hasn't told them how to practice it. You can tell who they are, because all you have to do is look in their face, and they've got that look in the face where they're 
rest was irritable and discontented. Go up and tell them that you want them in the program and make them feel comfortable. That's what it means by where we carry the message to the alcoholics still suffers. Let's, there are people suffering in Alcoholics Anonymous and in Al-Anon. Try to keep them here. And I want to thank the committee for giving me the very pleasurable privilege of coming to be with you. I want to thank you, the people that sat and didn't go and get coffee and listened to me. <laughs> because you listened and you made things easy for me. <laughs> Last but not least, I want to thank God for giving me one more beautiful day to do something for Alcoholics Anonymous. And every one of you look real good on the outsides. How are you really on the inside? Thank you and God bless you.